And we're going to try today to get number 16 and 17. And I told you to look at the overall purpose of these chapters. And the overall purpose is to emphasize that God has selected Aaron and his descendants as priests. This is one of the few events that we know of during this wilderness wandering. I think it is recorded because it summarizes much of this period and probably a lot of what was happening. And it is a reflection of this. Now verses 1 through 3 deal with the complaint. The complaint against Moses... And Aaron. The complaint against Moses and Aaron. The text says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliam, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. The Lord is in their midst. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. The rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, we sometimes call this. This man on, mentioned in verse 1, is not mentioned again after verse 1. And so those three images, or those three people, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, are the ones that we think of most readily with this rebellion. But also, there are 250 other men that you see mentioned in verse 2. 250 men, they are described as leaders, leaders of the congregation. And they are described as men of renown, men of name, is what the text literally says. And this is showing they had a name, they had a reputation. These were 250 prominent men that are opposing Moses and Aaron in their leadership. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. If you don't have an immediate answer, we can come back to it if it's talking in verse 3. Let me just ask the question and come back to it. Why did I draw that on the board? Well, there's a purpose for that. Okay. Well, Sarah, you've already acted like you've got it. Well, I, I had it in my notes. The Kohaths and Reuben lived next to each other, and I'm wondering if that had a connection to why yes. the tribe, people from the tribe of Reuben were the ones who joined in. The Dathan and Abiram uh, and On as well, but they're from the tribe of Reuben. And Korah is from the tribe, I put from the tribe of, I combined Korah and Kohath there, uh, but they are from the family of Kohath. And so probably, as they were sitting around the camp at night, they had the chance to express their dissatisfaction. And it spreads 
uh, in this group. So, so the mention of these tribes in verse 1, I think it may tie with that encampment. But Korah is a Levite. If there is one leader, Korah seems to be it. He is mentioned most frequently in this particular chapter. But what they say against Moses and Aaron is you've gone far enough. This whole congregation is holy. Every one of them. Why do you exalt yourselves in the midst? The whole congregation is holy. Well, look back at 15 verse 40. 15 verse 40, as the people are wearing tassels on their garments, they do this in order to remember that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So all the nation was holy. They are described as a holy nation in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. All the nation is holy. And it is true as well as verse 3 states that the Lord is in their midst. Remember back in 14 verse 14 of Numbers? This is what Moses prayed. Lord, you are face to face with this people. That you are in the midst of this people. And your reputation is tied to what happens to them. So what he is saying expresses a lot of truths. But why do you exalt yourselves? Has Moses exalted himself? Has Moses chosen this position? When Moses was called by God, he said, who am I? He doesn't want it. God has to convince him to go down to Egypt. And Moses complained in Numbers 11 sinfully. But he says, Lord, you make me bear all the burden of this people alone. I can't take it. Moses has not exalted himself above the assembly. Now, these 250 men who are leaders, from reading the text, if you had to answer this question, how would you answer it? They are predominantly from what tribe? Levi. I think that's exactly right. They're predominantly from the tribe of Levi. And we'll see that particularly in verses 8 through 11. I will grant you this, that this chapter is a little bit difficult to follow because you have two rebellions going on at the same time. Liberal critics who who do not believe in inspiration will say, oh, there's just sources here that have been kind of carelessly combined. I don't think that's the answer, but I do grant it that it is difficult to follow a little bit because Korah seems to be part of both of these groups. But we'll see some of that as we go on. When Moses and Aaron hear this, verse 4, they fall on their faces. They will do that three times in this chapter. They're falling on their faces. And they propose a test in verse 5. Tomorrow the Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring near to Himself 
whom he will bring near to himself, even the ones whom he will choose to bring near to himself. So God will show who's holy. God is chosen. God will choose who he will bring near. And God... God will make all these plain. And it says, do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all the people. In verse, in verse 6 and 7, he says, put fire in them, lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. The sons of Levi... Or, or, or Cor in his rebellion said in verse 3, you've gone far enough. Moses takes those same two words, throws them back at them, and says, no, it's you who've gone far enough. It's you who've done wrong in this particular matter. Now, one of the reasons uh, Anissa asked the, answered the question the way she did about the tribe of Levi is right here in verse 7. You have gone far enough, you sons, plural, of Levi. It seems like Levi as a whole was involved in this. They seem to represent most of those 250, I take it. Uh, Not exclusively, but predominantly. In verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the Lord God has separated you from the rest of the congregation to bring near to himself, to bring you near to himself, to do service to the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation and to minister to him? He has brought near Korah and all the brothers of the sons of Levi with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? The tribe of Levi had been give, had given up, or was given special privileges by God. When Korah said the whole congregation is holy, you're exalting yourselves above everyone else. I doubt Korah who was a Levite, was meaning to say, well, let's take all these things away from the Levites and let's spread them equally among the other tribes. But Korah was probably wording his argument in a way to get as many followers as he could. All this assembly is holy. And Moses takes it. The Levites are wanting the priesthood itself. And he says, the Lord has chosen you, in verse 9, here are the special privileges of the Levites that are laid out. They are brought near to him. They're not brought as near as the priests are, granted. But they have a special relationship with the tabernacle that no other tribe has. They are the ones camping around the tabernacle. They're the ones camping around the tabernacle. They're the ones who guard the tabernacle against any unlawful intruders. They do all of this. The Lord has chosen you to bring you near to Himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister. 
It is so easy to become envious of those who seem to have a more respected position than we do. It's so easy. But are we forgetting when that happens what a privileged position God has given to us? Here, God has given to the Levites a privileged position to serve in all these ways. And they are not thankful for that. All they can think of is how the priests are getting more honor and respect than we are. Moses is getting more honor and respect. Is that easy to fall into? Even Miriam and Aaron did this in Numbers 12. Yeah. It's easy to fall into. I understand that. May God help us all to rise above it. And it is God's privilege to choose who He brings near to Himself. Oh, you priests think you're so much better than anyone else? I could hear the words almost. No. But God selected them. The same true in ministry today. Women have an exalted position in the kingdom of God. But it's not serving as elders or serving as preachers. It's not serving in those kinds of roles. Be thankful for the position that you have and rejoice. Women played key parts in the ministry of Jesus. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Those are privileged things that God has given to them. But it's the same kind of principle that we're dealing with. So Moses, notice that Moses in verse 5 addressed his language to Korah and all his company. In verse 6, he addresses his language to Korah and all his company. In verse 8, to Korah and the sons of Levi. Now he's going to speak to these brothers, the sons of Eliab, Dathan, and Abiram. Now I want you to notice that Dathan and Abiram's first words really in verse 12 and last words in verse 14 are we're not going to come up. We're not coming up. We're going to make a play on that later. But the sons of Eliab said, We will not come up. Is it not enough that you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Verse 13, To have us die in this wilderness, but you would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields, of vineyards. Would you put the eyes of, put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, what strikes you about the language of verses 13 and 14, Josh? Coming out of a land filled with milk and honey. Okay. I assume they're talking about Egypt. Egypt. Egypt is the land of milk and honey. They have spoke glowingly of Egypt before, but they haven't used those words. Those are words that God used to promise the land of Canaan from as early as Exodus 3 verse 8. You have it. You, you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. And you've not brought us into one. 
Again, Egypt and noticing how the people speak of Egypt is is just so striking. And again, it has parallels in our experience. It may be easier after a person becomes a Christian and they face difficulties to think, well, I had it easier in the world. Really? Maybe you're forgetting what it was like over there in the world. And I tell you what you're certainly losing sight of. It's where that path is headed. You're forgetting that if you think you got it better in the world. But you see it here, and I understand it. That, that sometimes the, the difficulties of the present make us long for the past, and but but they are totally rebellious in the type thing they're saying. And one of the words I wanted to particularly concentrate on is here in 1613 this word Lord would you Lord it over us now this is a verb uh, in the original language it's a verb that's used only about six times in the whole Old Testament But, the corresponding noun to this particular verb, the word from the same root, let me tell you a place where it's used. Exodus 2. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you, prince? And judge over us. Are you going to kill me? Like you killed the Egyptian? The word prince in Exodus 2 and verse 14 is the noun, the noun and the verb. This is the verb in number 16, 13, but this is the noun that comes from the same root. And so, this is in effect them pushing Moses away. Who made you prince and judge over us? By the way, in context, what's the answer to that question? Who made you prince and judge over us? God did. God made us prince and judge. God made him prince and judge over them. So, this is, um, this is, what you see here is a constant rejection of Moses. Remember, by the way, this event in Exodus 2 was appealed to by Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7, 24-27. And Stephen's point is, you have always rejected the deliverers God sent. And so, in a sense, this wilderness experience of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram is a replay of that. It is a rejection of Moses and a rejection of the position that God has assigned to him. You notice too in verse 14 that he says, You haven't given us vineyards. You haven't given us fields. They would have already been in this land had they not been rebellious. And Moses prays an imprecatory prayer in this very context. Moses is going to pray an imprecatory prayer and he's going to pray 
an intercessory prayer. But in verse 15, he says, Lord, don't accept an offering from their hand. I haven't taken a donkey from them. Korah and all the people are gathered before Moses in verse 16. And they have fire, uh, they have their fire pans ready and their incense on it. And a lot of you could visually say this better in a way to represent all this fire pan and incense and what it looked like. But they brought their censer and these 250 men and they took their censer and they put fire on it and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 19, Korah and all the congregation assembled against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 20, verse 21, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron, they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? When one man sins. Really, there's more than one man sinning. But they are begging God to show mercy just as Korah stated his words in the way to gather the most to his rebellion, Moses arranges his words in the way that's best, most likely to achieve mercy. Lord, and, and it's true that one particular person had led in this sin. And he says, O oh Lord, when one man sins, will all the congregation be ready, be, be, be destroyed? Now, the same Moses who prayed, don't accept the offerings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. It doesn't seem like he's asking for mercy for them. But he's asking for mercy for the whole group. <clears throat> Moses continually, when met with rejection, intercedes. Wow. What, what thoughts do you have? What questions do you have? Anything, Sarah? In verse 14, um, they say, would you put out the eyes of these men? What's, is that related to something I'm missing? <laughs> well, uh, just one of those nice little difficult things that go in there. No, I had a, I had read an explanation of that. Look at my footnotes. And my footnotes aren't very helpful. It has them putting out the eyes of Samson, Judges sixteen twenty one, and uh, Nahash the Ammonite making a covenant with people on the grounds that you let me put out your right eye. Uh, did you have something, John? The NIV says, "Do you want to treat these men like slaves?" You want to treat these men like slaves? Let me look back and see. Okay, the the, the word for. Um, it does mention the eyes of these men. I read a good explanation. I may have to send that out this afternoon because I'm forgetting it at the point. But I read an explanation of how of a couple of people summing up these words that I thought was good. So be expect be breathlessly awaiting an email sometime today. It may not may not come till tonight after services. John, well, I guess my question comment is related to this section. I get the impression that they feel like Moses is trying to 
blind them in a way, like he's scheming to get control over them by bringing them out here and then saying, yeah. oh no, you can't go, because God says. Um, and that's that's sort of the, the line of thinking of the footnotes in my version here. Um, so I guess my question is, is this rebellion so much rejection of Moses as much as it is also a rejection of God as if God isn't even involved? It, it's both. It, it's abs- because their grumblings are said in verse 11, your grumblings, who is Aaron that you grumble against him? Uh, but he says, you've gathered together against the Lord. I don't think that times people realize the impact. of. I, I don't think they would have said we're rebelling against God. But look at all God has done. When, when Moses held out the rod and the waters of the sea believed, God said, I did this in Exodus 14.31, that they may believe in me and they may believe in you. Now, often men are not viewed as the object of faith in Scripture. But the reason is because they're going to be questioning Moses' leadership all kinds of times when things get bad. But God has done sign after sign after sign through Moses to show no Moses hadn't selected himself. Moses wasn't able to perform the plagues or divide the sea. God did this. So ultimately, this is a rebellion against him. Now, this is the point that's it's difficult to apply about that, though. The difficulty in applying that, when is, can we question people, even people that the Lord has put over us? Can we disagree with them? You know, we, we can do all those things. But at what point is a disagreement like that a rebellion against not only these people, but God? It's, it's difficult to say. First of all, all the standard is always truth in Scripture. And um, so um, it's what them who's holding that up in the midst of a conflict. But, 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 but it is, it's a difficult thing to apply. But yes, ultimately, this is a grumbling against God. I want to tell you, though, and, and I say this sarcastically, and it's somewhat meant to be funny, but if I was Moses, I think I would have tried to start a new congregation. I really, uh, and, and I say that I, he had to put up with a lot in forty years in the wilderness. He put up with a whole lot, and but God kept vindicating him. Was one of the things that's striking about it. There's one good thing that people do in this chapter. And what is it? They follow what Moses said to do. They agree to the test. And well, yes, yes, they they do. In a sense, you could say two then. Yeah, because Dathan and Abraham just said, we're not coming up. They do at least agree to the test. Ryan? Previously, it seemed like when they grumbled, they were just kind of doing it in the shadows and in the tent. They're at least being forthright and are coming to the Lord with it eventually. Yes, yes. Okay, I'll say three. Okay, okay. We, we keep stretching. This is this is what I was particularly hitting at. What I was particularly hitting at was when Moses says, Moses intercedes and God says, tell them to get away from the tent. He says, so he said, get away from the tent. They get away. 
Now, that is so, it caught my attention in reading this because they've been rebellious and disobedient and complaining and all of a sudden they do what he says. It just, it, 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 it almost, in a way, is, is humorous and it's going to become very sad the next day when we see the response to this. But, but Moses sets the table in verses 28 through 30 just as plainly as anybody could. In verse 28, he said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. And this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, and if they suffer the fate of all men, the Lord has not sent me. If they die a normal death, I'm not from God. But in verse 30, But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and we could say some things about those words there that are striking, but if He brings about an entirely new thing, if the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurred the Lord. Now, how much more direct could that be? If these men die a normal death, the Lord's not sent me. But if this happens, and He lays it out step by step, if this happens, then the Lord has sent me. These men, or He doesn't say it that way, but He says, these men have spurned the Lord, is the way He says it. Now, what I want you to see in looking at this text. And Frosty, were you responsible for cleaning the board? Yeah. You're a good board cleaner. I won't tell you that. This board was a mess Wednesday night. And uh, it looked good when it came in this morning. But um, here, in verse 30, I want you to see how the following text, the following verses... We'll extend it all the way to verse 34, though most of it stops with verse 33, is almost a word-by-word enactment of what Moses said was going to happen. He mentions the ground open. And the word used there in 1630... For the ground, the ground is going to open. Uh, that word is used in verse uh, 31 that gives the fulfillment. The ground, the ground open. It, now, the, the statement, the ground will open in 1630. I think that word is not used till 1632. The ground will open its mouth, that's used, that phrase, its mouth, from 1630, is used again in 1632. The ground will open its mouth and swallow them up. They will be swallowed up, 1630. And that word swallowed is used again in verse 32 and 34 and 34, the people are saying, we don't want to be swallowed up as well. In the Bible says that they will descend alive into Sheol in verse 30. 
Well, that is fulfilled. That is fulfilled in verse 33. They went down alive to Sheol. Now, I may have left out something that I should have included. But you see the point. Exactly what Moses said was going to happen. Moses is the speaker in verse 30. In 16.30, Moses is speaking. Here are the actual events as they transpire. And the things that happen are exactly what Moses said was going to happen. Now, there's no other conclusion you can draw but that Moses is from God. Now, the word descend, the word descend that's used here in verse 30 and verse 33, that is the word in Hebrew. Uh, this, this word is, is called, it's, it's your rod, it means to go down. But that particular word in Hebrew is the op, its opposite was used in 1612. And in 1614, the opposite of that word is the word go up. And remember, they said, we will not go up. They will not go up because they will not go up. They will go down. I don't know if that means something to you, but it did to me. I thought that was pretty impressive that God says that, that you will go down. And they went alive in the shield. Now, at that moment, the people are overwhelmed with fear. And they're running away. And they're saying, we don't want to be swallowed up either. And by the way, Isaiah 5.14, Proverbs 1.12 are passages that pick Sheol as a big monster that consumes everybody. It's the same thing we see here. What about those 250 offering incense? Verse, verse 35, fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 who were offering the incense. Does that remind you of any other Old Testament story? They'd have to buy you. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. There you have authorized people apparently offering incense the wrong way. Here you have unauthorized people offering. And fire comes down and consumes the 250 and what they do is Eliezer in verse 37, the son of Aaron, goes and gathers the censers of each of these men. They beat those censers into a plating for the altar. And this is put as a plating for the, altar, for the altar. And it says in verse 38, the end of verse 38, that it will be a sign to the sons of Israel. It's going to be a sign to the sons of Israel. In verse 40, it is a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord. Now we said the whole purpose of chapters 16 and 17 is to emphasize that God has chosen the family of Aaron to come near to him to serve as priest. How is that demonstrated? It's demonstrated by this whole series of events. The whole series of events demonstrated. The 250 who offer their incense are consumed by fire by the Lord. And then they take these censers. These censers are holy. 
God said, I'm going to show who is holy. These 250 were not it. But their censers are holy. And they are taken and beaten into a plate, a sheet. And it is a testimony that no one who's not of the descendants of Aaron can offer incense. If you were Israel, how would you have responded? You'd hope there'd be nationwide repentance. You would hope that. But the next day, verse 31, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 41? It's 41, yes. Okay, 41. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, the congregation had assembled together against Moses and Aaron. Now they're doing it again. They have learned nothing from the events of the previous day. And they say in verse 41, they say, You are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. You're the ones. Now, remember we stated that when a separate Hebrew pronoun is used, that it's emphatic, that it's a strong emphasis, the separate Hebrew pronoun is used here. You, you're the ones. It's a way of saying this in the most accusatory way possible. You killed him. This is just unbelievable, isn't it? With all this series of events, Mary. They're rebelling again because they're blaming Moses and Aaron when it was obviously God. Absolutely. So they're still taking God's, you know, leaving yeah. his Yeah. Yeah, this, this is... In answer to Josh's question, I think you see even more clearly, like Mary's pointed out, that here God has done this. And this is not just against Moses and Aaron, though they're the only human agents to, to, uh, to, to, to spread out this wrath on. But it's ultimately against God, as, as you all stated very well. Um, but the congregation assembled, and God again says in verse, verse, 45, get away from the congregation that I may consume them instantly. By the way, Moses and Aaron uh, fell on their faces. The text, it said in... um, What verse is that? 22, but it says it again. 42. 45, 45, okay, 45. Get away from this congregation that I may consume them instantly. And it says, Moses, they said they fell on their faces. And what stops this plague? This is a plague that God sends among the people in verse 49 that kills 14,700. What stops the plague is Aaron offering incense. That makes atonement. Now, think about this. The 250, the 250 offered incense and fire went out from the Lord. It's verse 35 I refer to specifically about fire going out from the Lord. 
But the whole chapter, the 250, offer incense. Now in this case, the word that's translated went out is used here in verse 46. In verse 46, the text says that... um, It says, the wrath of God has gone forth. The wrath of God has went out. We'll translate the same word to show in verse 46, we're dealing with the same word. But but this is my point. Here, with the 250 offer incense, they're not authorized to do that, and the fire comes out from the Lord. Here, when the wrath of God comes out, it is Aaron's incense that stops the wrath. It's Aaron's incense that stops the wrath instead of bringing the wrath. It's Aaron's incense that makes atonement. How much more do these people need as proof that God has selected Aaron as priest? And Aaron is holding his censer, standing in verse 48, among the living and the dead. But in verse 48, the plague was checked. The plague was stopped. So here in... This section, Aaron's incense stops wrath. Now, chapter 17, God is preemptive. God said, I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop all this grumbling and all this complaining. Look at verse 5. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I shall lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. God says that. To Aaron. But what they did is they collected a rod from every tribe. Collected a rod from every tribe. And they put the names of those tribes on the rod. And in the tribe of Levi, they put the name of Aaron as well. And they deposit them before each one, before the testimony. And God is going to show who He's chosen. All the other rods, and, and, and the next day they bring out these rods, and all the tribes are given back their rod. They can look at their rod. Nothing has changed about their rod. Their rod looks the same. And this is ideal for a young persons. Well, so I teach in a young people's class. I mean, this is a great way to visualize a story. And they give back their rods. Nothing else has changed. They give Aaron's rod in verse 8. It came about on the next day that Moses went into the tent of testimony and behold the rod of Aaron for the for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced almonds and it bore ripe almonds. Now I don't know. God didn't specify exactly what all he's going to do with this rod before but I don't think it took any great uh, intelligence to indicate to see whatever he was going to do to show who was approved, he did it to Aaron's rod. 
I mean, the, the rod is, is sprouting, putting forth buds, producing ripe almonds. God is showing. He has chosen Aaron and his sons to be priests. And in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumbling against me so they will not die. God is being preemptive. God is doing this to to stop their complaining, to stop their grumbling where they won't die. Even in this act, This event is an evidence of God's mercy. That God doesn't want the people to die. And listen, before you raise this objection, here's the answer. The answer is looking right at you. Now the people are finally, it seems, at least temporarily, brought to their senses. And in verses 12 and 13, the sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish. We're dying. We're all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Now the people recognize their need of a mediator. I do think that this is something we don't properly appreciate. Because if you've heard sermons, at least this would have been true of me growing up. If you heard sermons in church of a priesthood, it's probably a statement that we don't need priests, it's Catholic priests. Or all believers are priests. We do have a mediator though. <laughs> There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Christ is our mediator. It's 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Christ is our mediator. Christ is our high priest. Because God is so holy, we need someone to approach God on our behalf. If that was true, if these Levites, if, if, if these Old Testament Israelites found that mediator in Aaron? How much more do we have that mediator in Jesus? So all of this again still points to Him. Now, if you've gotten this last 30 seconds or minute an idea, I apologize for short-circuiting your comments, but it is hard to cover two chapters in here. Uh, what, what, what thoughts do you have, John? Do you, do you think they're really... Have they really gotten it at the end? That language is really weird. Momentarily, I think they have. Moment, I, I think it's, it's, it's like Mount Sinai. Remember when God spoke and they said... We're going to die. Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us in Exodus 20. And God said it's good that this was in their heart. Um, That's Exodus 20, about verses 18 through uh, 21. And we'll find it commented upon in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Also, Isaiah 6, 5. You remember when Isaiah is in the temple with leprosy, he says, Woe is me, for I'm undone. I think they do momentarily. 
And this will lead to the next chapter, as God will tell us in the next chapter, the provisions for the Levites and the priests. Because the people see their need of a mediator, and therefore He's going to give instructions about, about the role they play and how you provide for them. So momentarily, yes. Long term, no, I don't know. I, I'm afraid that their history doesn't bear that out. But I want to tell you something. It's a good thing to be overwhelmed sometimes with the awesomeness of being in God's presence. And to understand that none of us are worthy to stand here. None of us. And none of us are worthy from a Bible class teacher to whoever for the positions we serve in. In God's kingdom. He's so much greater than we are. And yet in His mercy, He has provided a sacrifice in Jesus and a mediator in Jesus. The thing is, we don't want to dwell forever in this state. We're going to perish. But we've got to be reminded of it. Or we're never going to appreciate the salvation we have in Christ. God bless. And Lord willing, Wednesday night, numbers... I'm not going to say numbers 18, 19. I'll just say numbers 18. Read them both. <laughs> Read them both. Okay.